Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Everybody, episode of the Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty. Today we'll be talking with Pranav from the Graph. Pranav, why don't you do the normal thing? Give everybody an introduction as to who you are and um, maybe like 10,000 foot view of what the Graph is. Sure, awesome. So I'm Pranav. I'm a solutions engineer at Agent Node, which is the initial team behind the Graph protocol and now one of the three core devs building indexing and querying on the Web3 protocol, which is the Graph. That's the first, you know, aspect of what I do as a part of the graph protocol in general. What the graph protocol is, you can say it is in simple words. We like, you know, take it uh, step by step. Explain it. Like, explain it to me like I'm three. Then you can say it is like uh, Google, but for the Web three world, for the blockchain world. Google indexes the Web two. Google indexes whatever is present in the traditional web. Similarly, the graph indexes the blockchain, which is the future of, you know, web, which is the web 3.0, what we call as. Explain it to me in a little more detail. As in, like, I'm in 7th or 8th standard, you can say it is an indexing and querying protocol for different, different kind of blockchains. What is indexing and querying? You can say that whatever information that is, you know, stored inside a particular data structure that has to be brought out in a like you know systematic fashion and has to be displayed before it can be shown to you in the front end of a different application right and to make that happen to uh, get that information which is scribbled through in the uh, the, the the database in a desirable format you have to have some kind of thing that's what Google does for the Web2 world. It scrapes data. And then, you know, whenever you are searching, it shows whatever it has already scraped. Similarly, the graph protocol does for the blockchain. Whatever data is being, for example, you interact with the decentralized application, you interact with Uniswap, you interact with the Rarible, you interact with, you know, all these different, different awesome decentralized applications. You are always interacting with smart contracts on the back end, which are incurring data. All that data, as per your actions, make changes and have to be displayed in a desirable format to the front end. How does that happen? That is done via creating different subgraphs, which we'll be going in detail. But uh, these subgraphs make the entirety of displaying information in a decentralized fashion to the different decentralized, you know, uh, applications to the front end. So it's like it's 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 you can say it is the you know it it is the layer which connects the blockchain data to the front end. You can say that. The naive question the, from there, like yeah. the obvious naive question, which I'm sure you get a lot of, um, or you might even have FAQs that address this, is why not just use the blockchain? Why do you? Uh, why do we need middleware? to go from the data embedded in the blockchain to uh, to get to the front end right this is this is this is a very like you know cool question and you can 
put it in a category like why the graph what did people do the graph you know started building in 2017 what blockchain existed before that what did people do before the graph protocol what how was the information from the blockchain produced to the decentralized application you can say that that you know before this particular you know uh, web3 economy of web3 stack which the graph produced from you know the the the, the blockchain layer to the front end was there people used to do two approaches the first or the most like you know famous but not so, so much in the ethos of the web3 world was having a centralized server whenever people interacted with a smart contract that information was listened to by a web, uh, you know web socket or a listener you know stored in a centralized database and whenever people requested it based on you know cre- uh, uh, based on the data that was stored was produced to them on the front end right this creates a single point of failure on you know that particular decentralized database on on that particular decentralized uh, application in the form of a centralized database because whatever information you are saying in a decentralized application might have been tampered at that central point of database that was created this is the biggest issue that the graph actually identified and you know we wanted to change the way people are actually used to interact second second you know second uh, approach that you were also talking about why not directly use the blockchain to get the data you have to first of all understand the fundamentals of blockchain it is created in a way to be censorship resistant as well as a, you know kind of db as or a web which cannot be censored which can never be hacked so it was created with an assumption to have security guarantees it has security guarantees while you know some other things like getting information inside that particular blockchain or getting that information outside is not that much tackled its main use case or the main frontier of a blockchain is to have security guarantees for whatever information is you know being interacted with that particular application and for that reason the design pattern of the blockchain is such that that it you know has linkless structure right so whatever information you are interacting with is stored in a linkless structure in form of like you know boxes if you are a little technical you understand that there are always boxes which are connected to one another that's you what can makes be a linkless technical as you want here so have, have at it it's a, it's a, it's a relatively sure. technical audience so if i feel awesome. like too awesome. deep I'll, i'll bring us up awesome awesome so you can say that there is linkless structures that make this blockchain possible right so if you want to get the information directly from the blockchain you have to first of all have captivated one of the full nodes that's first of all very challenging task if you have been running on a ethereum full node you will get my plea if you are running a even faster node like bsc or polygon you like you know you might try to start crying because it's so so like you know it 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 it, it is very computer intensive right and you have to first of all run that full node and secondly every time some user wants to get the information that full node which has the linkless structure of whatever blockchain is being made has to be queried from the genesis till the current date just imagine i am going to the info.uniswap page today and despite all the computation power that i have it opens tomorrow why because ethereum was created in 2015 every 7 se- seconds a new block is generated every 7 seconds somebody is interacting with info.uniswap so whatever info.uniswap page has to load the, the 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 traverser or the pointer which 
gets the data has to go through every block of the Ethereum blockchain to get that particular information outside in the info.uniswap page. Very challenging. I would say this would make the user adoption something close to zero. And that's why we require something like the graph. The first approach, centralized approach, is not the correct way to make a dApp, right? It is a mm -hmm. good way to make an application which works on Ethereum. Don't call it the decentralized application then, right? It should it's not a, have It's a any... centralized application that uses decentralized data. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is a centralized kind application of. which uses like, you know, blockchain. So yeah. you can say that. But if you want to use a decentralized application and call it a true dApp, a true decentralized app, then the information that it is getting from the blockchain to the world has to happen in a decentralized fashion itself. And that's what the graph does. Yeah, I want to I want to add on a little bit to what you said. Like, um, I think people misunderstand how inefficient it is to, to pull data from uh, the blockchain, especially if... Right. Like if you, if you, even if you look at like a smart contract for that instance, and we'll get into kind of how, how the graph forms a layer above this to solve it. Um, so specifically like in the, in like the decentralization of how it does that. But like, uh, like you said earlier that the way this is optimized for is, is for security. And to add on to that, it's, it's the linked list structure, the blockchain structure that we use. We'll just talk about Ethereum for now. Um, okay is specifically made such that you can perform uh, distributed consensus proof of work very efficiently and store blocks such that they can be passed around really quickly and then store them and reference them. So like how you're storing these things on, on your hard drive and accessing them is for, for your, for your full nodes that are participating in consensus or even just passing, passing uh, information around. So that so you can so everyone understands that this is the canonical blockchain and we're happy about it and these these are the transactions is is only for is optimized for for specifically for consensus right not right. pulling information out and so how you package these things together and then store them and then optimize for accessing them on on your hard drive has nothing to do with um, what transaction you did a year ago on Uniswap and optimizing for getting that information, right? And so be, because of that, the like the cost of asking the blockchain for some types of data is incredibly inefficient. It's specifically Correct. the further back you go or um, asking like ask like asking say I have the blockchain uh, I, I run I run a full node or an archive node. If I want to ask it um, Here's an address. Give me all the transactions associated with it. Right? It's going to yeah. say, okay, how am I going to do that? I need to understand every transaction <laughs> that's ever happened across the history of this thing. And right. I need to pull that. That means that, like you said, Ethereum was built a long time ago. It needs to go through every single block and then go through every transaction in that block to then parse for that specific address. And in some cases, based on the way these transactions are formed with things like internal transactions, like it's not obvious that it includes this address from a to or from ad like is either money sent to or from or I'm interacting with a contract so I have to add, I have to look at the contract and see if the address is inside one of those transactions so there's a, there's a myriad of ways that this address could be involved in some type of transaction across the entire history of the blockchain and do you think about that computationally like I have to go to my hard drive 
and then pull all of these things or like query all of these things to see if it exists. And there's interesting ways to do this, but like, right. like we said beforehand, the way that the distributed consensus works, which is what these nodes are optimized for has nothing to do with asking that question, which is why it's right. so efficient. And so like solutions like the graph are like, okay, well, since it's not optimized for that, let's build something that is optimized for that. And Correct. we'll get into kind of how you've done that and the languages you chose to like make it so that I can ask a question and only get the information back that I care about and nothing more. Right. Like right. for instance, most of the queries we ask with the blockchain are in the form of like a, um, a filter. Right. Correct. And that like, I want a transaction that looks like this and it gives me back a bunch of things that look like that. And then I have to Correct. go through that. It's a like bloom filters are kind of the, the general thing for this. Like I, I give it a pattern and say, give me all the transactions that match this, match this pattern. And depending upon what that pattern is, I can get way, way, way more stuff than I want or exactly what I want. Um, right. More often it's, than not, it's, it's way more. And so I have to parse through all of that stuff and then, and then get it. And so what the graph has done, which we'll talk about here in a bit is like, basically they just like, I want this. And it's like, okay, here it is. That's it. That's, this is all that, that's right. it. And only that. So Correct. if you want to talk about kind of is, the graph, like GraphQL, uh, uh, Correct. Uh, yeah. like in general, how the graph functions, you can say that as like, you know, you very nicely explained it, it, it does look like, you know, that blockchain is a linked list structure, which is a database in itself. And it has the data, all you need, all you like have to do is use and make a decentralized application, but that's not the case. You have to parse every, you know, specific block to get the data. And for that reason, the graph was created as a protocol back in 2017 when the founders, you know, got back, understood that Ethereum and blockchain in general is the next web. It is the web 3.0. For me, definition of web 3.0, you can say that web 1.0, uh, which is like, you know, definitely I have found from a tweet, very famous tweet was that, you know, Providers create information, uh, create content, and they get paid. Web 2.0 is even worse. You, as a person, create content, and the providers get all the money. <laughs> and Web 3.0, on the other hand, is when the users create you know, content, and they themselves get paid. It is a way to make decentralized web. It is a way to, you know have censorship resistance web which is going to rule the world if we have censored web ruling the world then we have these tech giants ruling the world that's why we need the next step in the web and that's what blockchain was and that was the importance of making you know this particular deal a deal breaker web 3.0 is the deal breaker to the tech advancements I don't, you know, I, I believe every technology is great and everybody is doing their fit and doing their job. But I would always say that, you know, machine learning was an improvement into the current web while blockchain is the new web itself. Machine learning will be used in this particular web as well. And we are going to progress that. And the graph is going to play a very important role. Why? Because you yourself, like as we were talking, you told about we need very, very synthesized data. We need very specific data that models are you know made upon and based on that, the information is processed. That particular data has markets right now. Facebook only sells data 
as targeted ads. YouTube only sells data as targeted ads and that's their economy. But we at Web 3.0 believe in the openness of data. We at the graph believe in the openness of data. That's why if you create a subgraph using open smart contracts, you get open APIs that you can use or anybody else who is interested in your particular subgraph can get the data from. It is not like a treasury or a gold that you save for yourself and then sell it for your you know intentional yeah. purposes. So like that I, I was, usually yeah go ahead, I'm sorry go on. Uh, sorry, uh, but 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 that was the main intention of creating and being so much involved in the Web 3.0 as a culture and also you know being so much importance giving so much importance to this particular protocol for getting information to the world using open APIs in a decentralized fashion. Yeah. Um, I, I often try to convince people that the current structure of the internet is, and, and like the problems that we associated with it. I, I, let me rephrase that. The problems that we associate with the internet with like, you know, big tech, and censorship and kind of privacy violations is a direct consequence of the infrastructure of how the how the internet is made and like in, in this kind of web and spoke centralized fashion when you build applications that way what naturally happens the emergent process is you gain users that depend on your infrastructure that you own to serve them data and so what ends up happening is that you just amass more and more and more data that you that you, you have custodianship of and come to find out that that comes to be really 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 valuable when someone says hey i'd like to access a specific group of people with these attributes and and sell them ads because who do they go to they go to the tech companies who have the infrastructure that's holding all of this data and curated in such a way we're like oh i, I know who those people are here you go here, thank you for the money Right. And so like that is a like what we experience today in social media and getting at, you know, incredibly direct served ads, which are and sometimes convenient, but incredible, like like violations to my privacy. And I'm not getting any money for it uh, <laughs> and, and is, is, is because of the way we built the, the Internet. Web three is a direct attempt to try and change that uh, in a way where like with the way you build applications still has really, really, really good quality data, right? You can do machine learning eventually on this data. And then the blockchain is perfectly structured in a sense. It follows a specific set of rules because it has to, otherwise they wouldn't be valid transactions. So like doing machine learning on this vast amount of data will be a thing. I actually wrote a tweet about it the other day asking like what people have been thinking about doing this. Because uh, right. I'm, I'm very much interested in it. But... <laughs> At the same time, like accessing those people based on the attributes you'd like to access them from will probably end up being like a form of consent in some cases, in some cases not. But more often than not, when you want to give them something, they're going to be, they're probably going to benefit from it. Um, or right. at, at the very least, like you have this sense of there's value accrual at the, at the data layer. And so accessing that information of transactions from various people based on attributes and then doing something with it to make money um, right. will probably have value accrued at the, at the base layer and 
assuming that these people are sending transactions, they have the underlying uh, asset at the base layer, they're probably going to benefit from it because that like there's, there's potential that value goes up. Right. Also, like, you know, just to add to that particular point that you're talking about, this is more so like, you know, I, I believe whatever progressions we do in life, whatever innovations that happen in life are somewhat related to philosophical structures that were created back in the days. And that's how, you know, we, we, we progress and make future tech. That's what, why we, how we evangelize about the future. And there is this very, you know, specific quote, I forgot the person who told about it, but this is very specific to human lives that if you are in a particular ecosystem or an organization where people are respected based on the information they have, not on the work they are doing, then you are probably in a wrong ecosystem, in a wrong, you know, world. And that's what the web 2.0 was doing. It was respecting, it was, you know, giving a lot of money and increasing the share prices of companies which had information. All their economies, all their, you know, structures and all their, what we call as the money Legos or the money, you know, aspect of generating uh, revenue was very much related to the data that they had of users, which was not even theirs. It was generated by, you know, interacting with those decentralized applications, not, uh, I mean, uh, centralized applications, sorry. So that was actually, you know, the, the, the reason they made so much progress, but that's not how the ecosystem should work. Ecosystem should be working with open data, open source information, open source softwares, open information, and people, who should be valued, really valued, are the people who are innovating on the data that is created. And that is what the graph does. The graph opens the doors to the world's next-gen application data in an open-source fashion, in a decentralized fashion, with open APIs. All you have to do is make use of these you know, data points, very specific data points. If you want specific data points, you can create your own subgraphs. If you want like, you know, sub information from the subgraph created by somebody else, that's also open in the open markets. All as a user or as a person, you have to do to you know, incur value in this ecosystem of Web3 with the graph is use that data to do innovation. And that's what the ecosystem I want to be in. Why? Because again, with the philosophical line that you are being respected, not for the information that you have in that particular ecosystem or the organization, but rather because you as a person or as an organization are innovating, you know, you, you, you getting respect and revenue because you have done something which, you know, progresses the world. So that's what, you know, was the philosophy of creating the graph as a project and, you know, that's that's how it all started. Funny enough, I was in S Berlin um, right when the graph got started. I believe <laughs> it was just. Yeah. I remember walking by, and I was, and for some reason or another, I was really into GraphQL, uh, GraphQL, like just <laughs> as 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 a technology for um, creating a like a, a single specification that uh, both the front and back end can use, and so yeah, right. kind of married that 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 previous divorce that, that that people had experienced of like who designs the API and who follows who went between backend and front end development. Uh, we can maybe get into that here in a little bit, but like first I want to, I want to ask like the naive approach to this is like, cool. Um, I have a really, I have a really interesting way of pulling information from the blockchain. Um, 
and indexing it in a specific way such that people can ask the types of questions that they care about and get information really quickly and, 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 and succinctly. But uh, the naive way of doing that is like, I built the service and now you query my service and now I have full control over all that data and I can maybe choose to either not serve you what I think, I can change that information or uh, I could I could fall off a cliff and it no longer works anymore, right? How is the graph democratizing the process of of indexing this information and then serving it to users right this is this is a pretty awesome question and again i would take you through a long path of how we are approaching mm -hmm. the process of decentralization and you know how we have made products and protocols in a way which actually you know uh, dwells into that ethos and actually you know, make 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 the next move in that particular direction itself. So back in 2000, like you know, 18, you're talking about when you were in Ed Berlin and went through that particular graph protocol thing. At that point in time, we had like you know our, our first prototype being created, which was the graphs hosted service. How did things move around in that particular space? You can say that we always took the approach of progressive decentralization. What that mean, that meant is in, in, in Web3 world, some people are like, you know, just create a white paper, raise some funding, and boom, three years gone. After three years, they're like, you know, this protocol is totally decentralized. This is not how it works. This is not how something <laughs> or a product can be built. I, I, I don't, you know, really believe in that. It has to be in a progressive way. You cannot, you know, liberate the world. You cannot have like from dictatorship to everybody governing themselves. It has to be in a progressive way, right? That's that's how the world has to work. That's how people have to govern and be disciplined. And Why? that's what the graph. Because, you know, if if you leave people, you know, in, in, in a free world, they will, you know, <laughs> make noises because they are not trained to be decentralized. It has to be in a progressive way, right? People have to, first of all, understand the governance process. They have to understand the disciplinary process. They have to understand how things should function, right? And that's how they will progressively, you know, adopt this decentralized society. And that's what the graph as a product itself, you know, inculcated in its values that initially with this query launch, with the product launch, the first move that we are going to do is we are surely going to, uh, you know, have a product, which is the hosted service, which is the first move towards decentralized indexing and querying. This will give the product market fit as well as, you know, have adoption to different, different dApps who are currently having these centralized servers. They will understand this protocol. They will understand how, what subgraph is, how to create, you know, this particular thing, how to index using the protocol instead of their centralized so-called servers and, you know, create uh, APIs which can be used by their particular application as well as some, you know, other applications in for and behind uh, using that particular information. So the hosted service was, you can say, a very large indexer indexing different, different, uh, you know, uh, subgraphs. We are definitely going to go very deep into what a subgraph is. But in a brief, you can say that contracts that a particular application has, you know, they have certain kind of events and they need to be tracked for getting information outside. So those kind of events are, you know, currently tracked by the subgraphs and the subgraph is made in a way that in the end 
from the contract events you get apis which can be used to uh, you know process or produce data that is directly served in the graphql format in apis to your application to the uh, to directly to the people right so the hosted service was the first approach in making uh, the decentralized indexing and querying a reality the first move towards decentralized indexing and querying and we had a great you know uh, success in that particular approach and people really loved this kind of thing because oh, yeah. it was a big pain point right you can have decentralized applications you can you can have lending you can have borrowing you can have nfts you can have social tokens you can have social media on the blockchain but you need information that has to be portrayed to the front end to the users in a decentralized in a protocol based manners and people don't want to run their own servers run their own full nodes and then get that information and that's what the graph actually solved and people really loved it uniswap synthetics all these big decentralized applications build their subgraphs interacted with us and that's how it all got started but to answer your question about the place we want to reach the decentralized indexing and querying that is what the graph network is the graph network you can say is not just one indexer but a group of indexers permissionless anybody can come and index on the graph network and like for example there is a subgraph right and there are 100 indexers indexing that subgraph right so instead of one indexer on the hosted service now there are 100 plus uh, indexers indexing that particular information using the same subgraph process and serving that information in a decentralized fashion why the decentralized because now we don't have one indexer we have a network which has participants in the form of indexers who are indexing the subgraph and then storing that information and then you know producing that information live and also to your extent that that information can be tracked in the form of proof of indexing that data can be verified that this data is true or not why because we have these you know network we have participants in the network who are the participants let's go a little deep in the network and how the decentralized indexing querying actually functions in the way first one is the indexers in the graph network right i've already told you about the hosted service that the first product that the graph launched the second one which is the decentralized more you know decentralized version of indexing and querying with proofs is the graph network and currently being run only for ethereum network the hosted service serves about 22 plus uh, networks and you know soon we are going to do that for the network as well <laughs> yeah lot of, lot of work i would say and we can talk about like you know what's the future process of indexing and how tough it is to get get, get the data in a mm. decentralized fashion as well as still make make it happen but coming back to the topic the graph network it has five participants four we can say right now one is the graph indexer which is indexing the information specific to a subgraph right that's the indexer second one is the curator since the graph as a protocol is a market for different different subgraphs there are few subgraphs which might be more important uh, you know there uh, or as in in a way might be queried more than the rest of them and there might be some which are like queried less so 
based how do you find out as an indexer to get rewards on the network based on the economics the more the querying the more the revenue you generate how the indexers find out which particular subgraph they should index and which should they should not that that is based on the curation signaling so the curators are signaling on different different subgraphs that this is important this is not this is important this is not and that's how you know the, the next step of curating works and that's how this thing progresses and functions in the right processes so the indexers are signaled by the curator that this particular subgraph is something to cater to this particular subgraph is something you should be indexing right why because if you index all the subgraphs you have limited allocation you have limited resources you cannot be google for the blockchain oh, yeah. right? there's a lot there of stuff in the blockchain that no one gives a shit about <laughs> so there are like you know small small googles in the name of indexers who are indexing certain subgraphs the second one is as you told curators third ones are the delegators they just you know are you can see passive participants in the network they just you know delegate to a particular indexer and they are only here for the network economics and make sure things are right and then there are arbitrators who are actually making sure that the indexers are doing the thing in the right way there is a thing known as proof of indexing which makes sure that the data that the indexer is serving to the information uh, to, to to the uh, to, to the application who has created the subgraph is correct and is right that is run via proof of indexing and that is verified by arbitrators in general and that's how the graph protocol in the network sense functions right so you have a particular subgraph it has 150 plus google of its own which are the indexers right who are indexing that particular subgraph making sure that the information is correct and there are arbitrators making sure that the indexers are doing their great job as well as curators verify that this particular subgraph that they have is the correct one it is it is the right you know uh, one which is going to be used in future application this particular subgraph is going to be queried in the future so if this I, is how the network if function. i had to naively guess about how a specific arbitrator just like get like figures out whether or not someone is 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 indexing correctly i'm assuming it's some type of interactive proof or like they need to understand what a specific subgraph does and the types of things you can do within it and the types of data that uh, are requested. And they need to know that they need to know, they need to know the right answer. And they ask uh, a given um, person who's indexing one of these, one of these little mini Googles a question. There's a random question within that subgraph and then see if they, if they have the right answer. Is that basically the, the case? And so like assuming that they give you the right answer, you can uh, a, a certain number of times you have a certain number of uh, a level of confidence that they have all the data. Right. So it, it, it is more so like, you know, making sure if, uh, if somebody it's, it's optimistic proof. Right. Okay. So in a way, it is understood that things are correct. Everything is going right. But if somebody, you know, asks that, make sure that this is right. That's what is proof of indexing. That is the proof that is given by the indexer that I'm generating. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, really uh, indexing this particular subgraph and I'm getting rewards for this particular subgraph. And there are certain kind of proofs generated, which actually make sure that arbitrators can verify. Again, you know, generating proof is easy and verifying should be much, much more easier so that, you know, the network is very, very fast to make sure that proof of indexing is correct. And that's why that's currently happening on Ethereum because proof is generated on the Ethereum network itself, 
right? Okay. That's how arbitrators function and that's how this works. How are the economics for that? Like, how, how does that, like, why, why would someone do that, right? Like, so like, I'm assuming there's some type of stake associated with being an indexer. And if yeah. proven, if, you know, if there's proof that you're not doing it correctly, you get slashed or you're removed. Like, how correct. does that work? Correct, correct. That's, Both? that's how you have indexer allocations. And that is the reason you have delegated allocations, right? That's why we have, like, for curators, it's like subgraph is important, just signal to that subgraph. Now, indexers will make sure that things are going right. Now, for the indexers to make sure they have the right stake in the network, they are doing the right things, you know, producing the right stuff, indexers have to stake on the network, allocate to a particular subgraph, right? This, for example, to be an indexer on the graph network, you at least need to have 100K GRT uh, staked on the network to be a part of that, you know. And the delegators can six times the indexer has allocated to a particular subgraph, six times uh, make, make that a thing, right? So indexers allocate to a particular subgraph, right? And make sure things are right. Arbitrators then verify and cross-question that, that this is right or not. And if it is wrong, then there is slashing that happens on the network. What is uh, the, the, the reason people should have more allocation on the graph network? You can say an indexer is incentivized to like, you know, have more uh, stake in the, in, in the network because the more the stake you have, the more is the reward, which is a mix of the query fees plus the 3%, you know, uh, inflation in the network that is given to different, different indexers. Okay. So the more allocation you have as an indexer, the more, you know, uh, more is the, more is the, you know, reward you will get because. Okay. That, makes, that makes more sense to me because I was curious yeah. about how much it costs. I assume that people who are asking questions like the end users getting information or the application developers who are, who are querying new subgraphs, they're not paying for queries because you want that, you want that information to be, you know, as freely accessible as possible. So I was curious, what, what's the incentive for someone to actually run an indexer? Cause like you said, depending, right. depending upon how, how much they're indexing, it's a lot of work. I mean, it's right. really, but, but, you need but, to have a full node. So like, having, having that being said, having that being said, uh, there is a combination. First is the 3% inflation rate on the network that is distributed among indexes based on what percentage of allocation they have on the network. And the second one is the query fees, right? So every subgraph has APIs, right? Anybody who wants to access that particular subgraph's API, subgraph is, let's say, you know, Uniswap has their own subgraph, right? And they have open APIs. Now, all you have to do is just, you know, subscribe to that API and generate queries. And that query has to be paid in GRT as a token. So you have to pay, pay, pay that particular API in GRT, right? And you're not paying the graph or as a node as a team, you are paying rather the protocol, the indexers, because it is a combination of the query fees as well as the you know, the, 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 the indexer allocation plus the 3% administration. Okay. So you are paying for queries whenever you do them. Right. And how does that, why, 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 who, who sets the price for those? Is that, is that the actually indexer who sets the price for queries? Right. That's, that's more so like, you know, uh, you can say that's, that's like a bargain between the indexer and the person who is trying to get it. There is something known as scalar that the graph has developed. Again, I just want to like, you know, take 
some zoom out and talk about the like the immense work that is being required to make decentralized indexing and querying a reality before the graph there was nothing like indexing and querying when we delved into this when we made the hosted service and wanted to make the graph network we had to run round through every economics part we had two researchers totally working on the economic standards of making this happen and making sure like the inflation is correct it's the right way right that's why the indexers should get benefits you know they can eventually make their businesses out of indexing right so uh, and that's how a protocol should be it is not a business it is a protocol protocol generates businesses right that's why indexer like should be if if they have this much allocation they are for small indexer this is the team they can have this is a business they they can have so this was the first part like you know making sure everything is correct and you know waiting on that and the second one is while you are indexing a decentralized database which is in the form of linked list is very very tough to make it in a decentralized fashion in itself and that's why this particular specific question that you asked and many other required innovation on their own and the graph as a protocol and the three core devs the you know the first initial team being agile node never ever ever you know negotiate or or like you know subsidized on that they were always if there is innovation required if there is like you know uh, a protocol to be changed if there is lot of code to be written make sure that is being written but we'll never ever you know uh, like compromise with the decentralized and indexing and querying part of it we will never you know make like 100 only 100 validators are allowed or something like that you know if well, the payment usually has... so just to be clear most more often than not the there can only be 100 validators is is um a circumstance of the of the distributed consensus process like cuz after after specific amount specific amount of validators in some types of like old pvft distributed consensus it things get very inefficient and and and, and not useful right cuz the right. message you have to pass and pass around but for Similarly, something that as as more isolated as a single indexer doing a like pulling a specific amount of information from the blockchain and indexing it and serving it uh you're not limited to that type of thing right that's 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 why we can have as many indexers as, yeah. as are there so like it's the the protocol is as decentralized as it, as it can be yeah. but having that been said there is a limitation you know for some networks to have only similarly there was this limitation that you know if you are doing this querying what should be the query fees what should be rate it should not be like you know okay this is the rate you make it happen and like you know every query tough or easy eth call is a little more expensive eth get log is more expensive eth get block by data is easy why do people like you know if it is fixed then mm, then you know it's 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 no fun it's it's not the right way it is not the web3 way it has to be a bargain between the indexer and the person who is trying to get it it has to be a to and fro and for that the graph as i told you is the machine for innovation innovated something known as scalar which is like a state channel approach but tweaked in a way that you know it functions in the most scalable fashion state channels are great but they have very specific limitations that the graph solved made something known as scalar as a product and made sure this payment process is also happening 
So again, just to talk to you about that, how scalar functions, you can say indexer, you know, and the person who's trying to get the money, they have like a, an agreement that this is the amount that we want to pay. Then proof of indexing is submitted. And then, you know, this whole uh, payment happens. And this is recurred on currently on the Polygon blockchain. And uh, we have some stats, for example, like uh, Pickle Finance, uh, till, till I saw it, was doing like eight queries per second. And uh, they, they paid something around 3 GRT a week. That was, was done on the Polygon see... network. I was looking to see. I'm looking. I'm, well, when I'm looking to the right, I have your webpage pulled up in doc, documents. So I'm looking to see where Scalar is because I haven't heard about this process and how. Uh-huh. Like, what's the difference? Like, we've done a lot of uh, shows, um, episodes on this show about state channels and various other scaling technology. What did you do to, like, I, I, we can assume the audience knows what a state channel is and, and how it gen, like generally operates, right? You lock up funds, you pass met, you pass signed messages around that basically changes the account balance of both people. And then you say, all right, we're done. And you close it. Right. So you have, you know, lock up trend, like lock up transactions and you have finalization transactions. What did you do for scalar that differentiates from that? So, so you can say scalar is a product of connect plus it's a node coming together and making this, you know, approach of decentralized indexing and querying via state channels. That is, there is one query, right? Another query, they are made into a receipt that is transferred into the vector node, which is, again, I'm going very technical. If you don't mm-hmm. understand it, like, you know, we can, I will definitely link you to the blocks, which you can read forward yeah. to. Uh, but, but the thing is, there is a query, then there is a second query, they are made into a receipt. That receipt is made in transfer to a vector you know, transferer, which has the route now. It's not like it, like the state channel. You are one person, I am one person, we make a state channel, we do the transaction. It's like one query, second query, make a receipt, and then, you know, via the vector node, they are transferred to a particular consumer or the state channel for doing the payment. This is this scales the scalar or what we call as the state channel approach in a much, much more better fashion and makes indexing and querying a reality why because you are doing it for example something like uniswap is doing about you know a good number of queries per second right and if you waste so much time in via state channel making that state channel and then you know doing this particular approach then finalizing the query payment and then serving the data then we're back to the first problem that we talked about which is <laughs> which is like you know uh, yeah, indexing directly from this is this is a podcast uh, in audio and video form, but I'm going to share my screen uh, with you with with the blog that came up here, and use this visualization as a way to kind of help right figure this out right. So let's see. Let's get rid of this, so let's get rid of this banner. so so this 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 was the difference right that we uh, introduced the vector part of it here down the line consumer and router coming together to make it happen right. So there was a query made into a receipt vector transfer, vector transfer, and then the payment happens. That makes sure that the scale is infinite and there is a lot of scale happening in the network and making sure like the payments that are happening are in the correct formats. Okay. That's that's how, you know, the scaler works. Okay, Definitely so the way, you to go so this I'd say tech. it's an innovation on um, how you like the messages that are being passed around. So you have like, I would call like the, the atomic transaction, right? The primitive, which is going to be the query. Okay. 
right? Right. And then from queries, you then make a receipt. And then they say like, it's, it's different people passing around different things. And so you get to the, what, like what data structure, if you will, what proof of all these things actually gets embedded into what would be the state channel. And that allows you to scale with a bunch of different parties, as opposed to like what people traditionally think of with the state channel is me and you have a negotiation. We lock funds up, we pass around signed messages of moving just those funds and then close it when we're done. This is kind of like changing those messages we're passing around to allowing a bunch of other people to pass messages around, prove that they did it, and then give it to us so that we can embed it in what would be our state channel. Right. And if you like, you know, want me, I can also share a, share my screen if that's possible yeah. and give you an even more like, you know, a Great. deeper dive or like the user flow of how the scalar approach. Yeah, do that. yeah. Can you see? So this is basically like, you know, I would again, not be able to go through the whole Thing yeah. in a podcast it does require a podcast of its own if you want maybe, to we'll, come back. maybe we'll do another one one day to kind of go in more <laughs> deeper into kind of how this stuff works i'm fascinated by by like how you have strong guarantees around uh like value flow uh without hindering the actual user experience so yeah right so it, it's like you know a client and the indexer incorporated and then the the, the you know proof and the resolution comes in so it's some part is off chain and some part is on chain to make sure there is scalability plus security guarantees in general, if you talk about. So this is basically like, you know, as I tell you, uh, how, how, how scalar functions definitely suggest you to strong recommendations to check the blog, definitely check this particular diagram that I created using my drawing, bad in writing, I know, but <laughs> you know, this is, this I'll put is that blog the, on the description for people who want to read it. Right. This is, this is the level of innovation that the graph had to do to make sure that there is indexing and querying in a decentralized fashion to the decentralized application to call it a decentralized application. Let's give someone, uh, let's, let's, let's dive in a little bit to just the concept of a subgraph, right? Because uh, we were right. running, you know, we have, we have as many times as we want, but usually these things go about an hour. So, yeah. uh, well, like my interpretation of a subgraph uh, is there's data on the blockchain. Right. Everyone who's using Ethereum, sending transactions. We talked about kind of how it gets compacted and then put into a hard drive for nodes to do distributed consensus and all that. Right. And me, we'll just use the standard method or the standard kind of perspective. I'm an application developer that I and I and, I, and I'm making a decentralized application. I have smart contracts associated with this decentralized applications that uh, take transactions from users and then emit events based on whatever these contracts do. So like me as an application, and then I may be interested in some of the events from other smart contracts for my application. So what I would want to do is like say like, these are, this is the bucket of information that I'm interested in that is on the Correct. blockchain, right? Correct. And Correct. this is how I would naively pull it from transaction data of the Ethereum blockchain. So I'm going to take that and then transform it using uh, GraphQL and right. then define an API of all of the things any end user would want to know about right. that data. 
that allows them to ask very, very concise questions about any any of that information or subscribe to any event whatsoever, right? Correct. And that's, then, so like that, that's that's a subgraph. That's 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 pretty you know awesome definition of subgraph that you have given. But in general, you can say in a more simplified simplified fashion, you can say a subgraph like the graph is a protocol which can index events based on the contracts that you give it. Mm-hmm. Subgraph is the repository which you give the protocol so that it knows which particular information to index. And it does can it do, index the whole Ethereum blockchain. But does it, it do via, things automatically the, or does it need like manual specification of this is where you get the information and this is what you do with it? So, so like, you know, we can definitely we'll go deeper into how a subgraph is and what are the compositions. But in general, you can say it is a repository, which is collection of files, you know, made clubbed mm-hmm. into a repository to give information to the graph protocol that this is the information we need. And in return, you get GraphQL APIs, which you can use to definitely, you know, make your application. Should Now we are going deeper. We go like, what is this repository? What are the files does it have? The first one is the subgraph YML file. This is the file which defines that this is the information we need. This is like all we need to create a subgraph, right? This is the network we'll be indexing. We'll be indexing, let's say, Ethereum. So name, mainnet. Secondly, what is the contract you want to index? What is the data source you want to index? So the contract address. Third thing, what are the different different events you want to index? So the number of events, the name of the events, all of them sufficed into one. So you can say the subgraph YML file is the description of the subgraph. It is, you know, which, which is the most important, like you can say the readme.md of mm-hmm. the subgraph, you know, so it, it, it gives you all the information to the graph node that this is the information that I want to index. Done with the subgraph.yml file. The second one is like what information in what particular fashion you need. That is why the uh, the, the 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 schema.graphql file is file. So you just tell that this is the schema that I want. This is how it should look, and I just define it. So it's like the schema definition, right? Similarly, you do do in a web 2.0 world. So it's the schema. The third one is the mapping file, which is the most important one. So you get the information from the graph using graph like you know protocol so it gives you the information it has listened from the events that had been specified in the subgraph yml file it has the events now it has to be made in a fashion the data that the events have got have to be made in a fashion so that they attest to the schema that you have defined in the schema.graphql file you're getting me so mm-hmm. the YML file has the events. The graph protocol listens to that events for you, right? You have defined your schema. Now you have to convert this information that the graph protocol has for you in the schema format. And that happens in the mapping file. So it is an assembly script format. You make like some things in that so that the schema suffixes to the, 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 the event information that is there, right? Very easy, not I would say it's like, you know, it's it's not very tough if you know basic JavaScript. Definitely suggest you to give it a try. Strong recommendation just to go through the graph.com slash uh, docs. But this is how things progress. This is how things work. And, you know, this is how you define a subgraph. Very easy. Just a YML file, a schema app file, and the mapping file to make sure 
that you have the information of the contract stored so easy <laughs> so can you do you have any intuition on the computational resources required to run an indexer based on a given subgraph like what is what is the what scales the worst so like if i make a subgraph what should i be worried about in terms of the amount of resources that i need to maintain uh, an indexer that that services that subgraph right so i would definitely again give you a link for that uh, you know there are certain things but you can say that if you want to run a small indexer which is just indexing let's say one subgraph what two subgraphs maybe five subgraphs not more than that you can have like four cpus uh, a postgres gb uh, of 8 gb postgres you know database of 8 gb uh, a, a, a disk uh, with a terabyte one terabyte thing uh, four vms of the cpu and like you can say vm memory of 16 gbs this is a small like thing again you can create a google with just a small thing because of the beauty of the graph protocol but i can give you the links to that or maybe like how do i share here in the oh, private, chat. In private chat yeah oops wrong one open up my other file here i'll put that in the description for for others to see we can even just add it on here if you want so hardware requirements on screen for those who are watching podcast, you're just going to have to go to the docs in the description. Sorry. Uh, part of that question was like, what parts of the things that I'm looking for um, scale badly? Because a given subgraph can be large. Like if I think about like a large DAP like Uniswap, like I'm thinking about how many contracts does a given decentralized application care about? The larger ones are going to have to track a bunch of different things and a bunch of different events in order to um, keep track of all the things they need to index. Whereas like I may want to just look at a single contract that doesn't do very much. And so the computational resources of those two things are drastically different. What, what, what should I be worried about? Should I be worried more about events or should i be more worried about uh like transaction throughput for a, or should i be worried about the number of smart contracts in general or is it i mean of course it's a combination of these things but like do you have any intuition on the, like this differing scale of them right so so like you know i tell you the graph is the innovation in terms of querying in a decentralized fashion we have about as many number of Googles in the graph protocol, right, as the number of indexers. So everybody can innovate and understand their costing model to be beneficial as an indexer. But it is a combination. It, it's, it's more like, you know, your question is directly like, uh, if I have a subgraph which has very less number of queries versus why will I be so motivated to be a part of the Uniswap subgraph which has like 100 events or something like that. So the reason is, Uniswap subgraph will have more queries. The more query you have, the more you know. Uh, the more like as an as a person as a subgraph uh, indexer, uh, the more rewards you're getting via the economics. Very thought, very thoughtful. The graph as a protocol is created so beautifully. It's not just the allocation, but also the query fees that the indexer gets via the rebate pool, right? So 
the more because uniswap it is more people visit info.uniswap the more querying happens the more is like you know you can say the more people the query fees will be generated and given to the indexers mm-hmm. on the part which is tough like it's tough to index something like uniswap while it might be easier to index uh, a subgraph which has let's say just one event or something like that that's true but the graph believe me with you know two more core devs being added is working on making it much much more efficient there is something known as the graph node which listens to these events and that is being you know which which a part of its own you know so that 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 particular part is written in rust the graph node part is written in rust and that is being like made much much more efficient there are different different approaches that are being tackled maybe one approach is listening to rpc all the time you know there is an event fire the second one that currently the streaming fast which is the second code have introduced is the fire host which is storing the data in 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 a very like very very minuscule format and then you know uh, making the graphql approach and then giving it out which is the firebase firehose approach of doing this and mm-hmm. there are like different different thoughts that the graph is working on and making things more efficient but as i told you the blockchain is the future made with the with, with, with the consciousness of security and the graph protocol is the protocol with made with the consciousness that this blockchain which has security should be as secure as it is while we make the indexing part and availability the data availability part of that blockchain a reality in a decentralized fashion so all that has been worked upon definitely check out the graph forum to have more information there but yes the graph is working to make even uniswap uh, graph indexing very very easy syncing of that particular graph very very easy and very very fast and much many many more things maybe like you know in the future when you see we will have non evm compatible chains also being indexed by the graph because the approach that the graph follows is that the graph is internet of blockchain believes in the future oh. of internet of blockchain oh, it's not like you know, is this wonderful language of like being agnostic to <laughs> like that's what that's one of the reasons why i liked it in the first place to be honest is was that I was allowed to mix and match various backend components, um, whether it be like RSS feeds, creating my own DB and serving servicing that, um, incorporating you know a bunch of other stuff, and then combining it and melding it in such a way where I have a single unified API, and I can change it, and it's dynamic. I can change all that stuff the same as long as it's servicing the exact same API, right? And so the front end never cared. It just follows. It just follows the API that that both the back and front end agree upon. And so when you think about that in the context of of the graph and Web three, like you can you have this future where it doesn't really matter. I mean, it, of course it matters, but like you're able to pull information from a bunch of different blockchain networks in various formats and whatever, and unify that into a single API that at, at, that anyone can then ask very specific questions about. Uh, for anyone who's never heard of GraphQL, the language, I definitely recommend you look into it so that you understand kind of the, the benefits of being able to ask a very specific question and only getting the information you care about. um right and similarly as i was talking about like graphql in itself is you know application agnostic similarly the graph does not believe like you know one particular blockchain is the winner 
Web3 is the winner. The next progression in web is the winner. And we don't want to decide what people want to build on as a blockchain. We just want to be in an infrastructure. If you want to build on Solana, you want to get the information to the decentralized application, use the graph. If you want to use Near, similarly, if you want to go for Ethereum, build subgraphs and get the information. So that's what our approach is towards Internet of Blockchain. And we believe that this Web3 future with the Web3 infrastructure in general is coming to light very, very soon, like sooner than you can think. <laughs> I'm here for a reason. <laughs> All right, Pranav, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and um, helping both me and any of the listeners better understand what the graph is doing and how it does it and why it'll work. And um, for those who are listening, I strongly encourage you to go look into the links in the description, anything else. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Before I know. I, 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 in, in, in the words of the great Steve Jobs, I would say stay hungry, stay foolish, and keep building some graphs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks.